asking everyone. Good, I love it when I get, I know that there are people out there and that you're awake and that you're listening. It's all good things. Um, we have the great privilege, as you've worked out over the last week, that we're going through the Gospel of John, which is one of the great books of the New Testament. I mean, they're all great, but my goodness, John is marvellous. Last week, we heard from that wonderful beginning of John's Gospel, often called the prologue. And John, in those few words, transports us, you know, back into the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. Transported back to the beginning where the Word of God was with God and was God. It's, it's such an amazing start to an extraordinary Gospel. And as I was reading this week, I came across this little quote that talks about the prologue part. The prologue, he says, is a lens through which the whole gospel can be viewed. As we see from the beginning, Christ walking amongst us and then what he came to do at the end. And the prologue sort of starts to unpack that and, and give us all the topics for what's going on in the rest of the book. And it walks the lofty heights at the beginning of what was there before the beginning and the relationship of God to the Word of God. But it also brings us firmly down to earth because that Word walks amongst us. He's full of grace and truth. He took on flesh. He's incarnate. Uh, the eternal God became a mortal human being. The light that was the light of life, not just any old light, but the light of life walked amongst us. And as we saw last week, he can and he was rejected. He came to the world and he was rejected by the world. But he also came so that if we believe we can become children of God. And so, in some ways, verse 12, from last week, is our little topic sentence that will help us understand this week a bit more. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that becomes the underlying theme of this next section, as we see who will believe. And the overall purpose of John is laid out at the very end of the Gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. And you'll hear this a number of times as we work our way through the book of John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what happens? What happens when this word of life, this word of God, this eternal word of God enfleshes and walks amongst us when he speaks and he acts and he meets people. Well, we see some of the first encounters in our passage today and the first one is John the Baptist. Now, it would be really helpful for you to have your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at the text. So have your Bibles open. Paper Bibles are great. Digital ones are fine. They all, hopefully they'll all have the same words. And... Uh, there is a, I don't think it's here, no, uh, the little piece of paper you came when, got when you came in has a little outline where you can take notes, jot down questions and stuff that we'd love to hear 
through the connection cards later on. But the first encounter that we come across as Jesus walks into John's Gospel is with John the Baptist. Now, the other Gospel stories introduce John the Baptist as Jesus' cousin. Elizabeth is Mary's cousin and John is Elizabeth's son and Jesus is Mary's son and so they're second cousins. Verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. See, John comes preaching. Or verse 19, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. You see, John came testifying, John came preaching, not about himself. He didn't come saying, hey, I'm the the one, I'm going to change it all. No, he's someone, someone who comes after me, who's greater than me. He's the one. He's pointing forward to someone that he's waiting for, that he's preaching about, and he's baptising. And then along comes Jesus. And John, now now John's a a bit of an out there character, right? He wears camel hair's clothing, he's got got this rough belt, he eats wild locusts and honey. He's one of those guys, if you met him in a dark alley, you'd walk the other way real fast, right? He's, and you can imagine this wild sort of guy seeing Jesus and fixing Jesus with his eyes, that slightly wild look in his eye, and Instead of yelling abuse, which is what you probably find in a back alley around here, what he does is, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look. Now the old version said, behold. It's such a better word, isn't it? Behold, look, take notice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So John sees Jesus and he recognises him as the Lamb of God. Now it gets a little bit complicated here, just bear with me for a moment. We are very, you see, if you've grown up in Christian circles at all, if you've gone through you know, Sunday schools or SRE, if you've been around and heard John's Gospel preached and, or read it yourself, you get used to hearing the Lamb of God and thinking of that as a sacrifice of atonement sort of thing. That the Lamb of God comes and the Lamb is sacrificed and all the sins go on the Lamb and it takes your sins away. We get so used to it, it's almost impossible not to think of that. But lambs were not part of the atonement sacrifices. In the Old Testament, that was goats on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, or the bulls in the weekly and the daily sacrifice in the temple for atonement. Lambs weren't part of that. Lambs were part of Passover. So in Exodus chapter 12, when uh, they were about to flee Egypt... the the Israelites were told to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood from the lamb and smear the blood on the lintel of the door. And when they had done that, the angel of the Lord, the angel of death, sent by the Lord, would come and pass over the house 
and not visit death upon that house because it was one of God's people. It was someone who obeyed God. You would not be visited by the angel of death. You see, John is not expecting this sacrifice lamb who takes away sin quite so much, but a, meat, not a, but a, a Passover lamb who, de, who heralds judgment on the world. Judgment is coming. And in that judgment, he says something really weird is going to happen. He's going to take away the sins of the world. He never would have thought of that. But the Passover lamb who heralded judgment on the world meant that God would not pass judgment on his people. And so John is preparing the path. He's getting people ready to receive their lamb, their Messiah. And, and when you think about it too, all of that, all that Exodus 12 stuff happened right at the formation of Israel, at the formation of the people of God. This is when they came out and they knew they were going to their own land and their own place with their own God. And here Jesus comes as the Passover, the Passover lamb, creating a new people in the beginning. And his disciples listened, John's disciples listened to what he said. And they were prepared for what was coming. They heard him preach, they heard him say, you know, this is going to happen, someone is coming. And so when John says, behold, when John says, look, guess what? They noticed and they followed. Verse 37. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, as we will find out, the disciples are not always the quickest folk on the block. They knew, they'd worked out that they should follow Jesus. But that, I think, was about all they knew at this point. Look at verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Now, if you'd been under John's ministry... If you'd been told, here is coming someone who's greater than me, who surpasses me, he's the Lamb of God, all of these sorts of things, and you're asked, what do you want? I bet you you could come up with a better question than what they came up with, which is, uh, where are you staying? What? That doesn't make sense, does it? It's almost one of those things where you feel like they might have been taken by surprise, that he noticed them and he asked them the question, oh, I don't know, like, say, what do you want to go to? Where are you staying? Right. Come, he replied, and you will see. Well, they called him rabbi first, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So these two of John the Baptist's disciples understood that they needed to follow Jesus. But after that, actually what that looked like, what that meant, I think they were a little bit lost. And in their confusion, when Jesus questions them, you can feel their uncertainty. But they did call him rabbi. John explicitly translates the word for us as well. Rabbi is a Hebrew word which means great one or my teacher or something like that. It, it doesn't mean teacher in quite the way, it means someone you look up to and, and take respect to who might teach you but rabbi just means great one in that sense. They acknowledge that he's this teacher 
And Jesus invites them. He says, come, come, come and see, not just where I stay, but come and follow me. That's the invitation. And these two, Andrew and someone else, we're not given the other one's name, which probably means it's going to be John the Apostle, the writer of the Gospel, because nowhere else in the Gospel does he use his own name, right? Uh, They go with Jesus and spend the rest of the day with him. Then Andrew goes for his brother Simon, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. It was important. It was important to Andrew that the one that John the Baptist had sent them to was none other than the Messiah. Now that, John thinks, needs some explanation. So John takes the time to translate this word for us as well. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means an anointed one. You usually anoint a king. But it's translated into Greek as Christ. So Messiah equals Christ equals anointed one king sort of thing. See, John wants us to understand this word because Christ is a familiar word to the Greek speakers of the day. It's not Jesus' surname. It's this word of messiahship. It's this word of kingship. But this messiah word is from this strange language Hebrew that nobody knows except this little group in Palestine. Now, when you realise that John has now twice taken Hebrew and translated it for us as the reader, then it might give you some idea of the intended audience who he's writing to. That perhaps he's writing to not just native Hebrew and Aramaic speakers, but to the non-Jews as well, to people like you and me. Because, as we saw, we've already mentioned it, John has a particular aim in mind, verse 12 of chapter 1. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, to everyone, all, those outside national Israel, those outside the Abrahamic covenants, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, was for them too now. So he translates the word for them, for the non-Hebrew speaker. And so Andrew goes off and brings Simon to meet Jesus because he's found the Messiah, the Christ. And given the role that Peter plays in the future church, this is an important moment. Any reader of the New Testament knows that Peter plays a big part in what's to come in the foundation of the early church through the book of Acts, in writing parts of the New Testament, in being evangelist into Turkey and to the Jews. But think about it for a moment. The great apostle Peter, humanly speaking, would never have come to Jesus if Andrew hadn't gone and got him. And over and over in the Christian church, this has happened. Behind every great figure that you can think of 
If you look hard enough, you will find some less, for want of a better word, important figure, though in many ways much more important, who was instrumental in bringing them to know Jesus. Our own Archbishop, Kanishka Raffel, tells his story like this. I had a conversation with a Christian friend, during which he told me that being a Christian meant he had given control of his life to Jesus. It was an answer that surprised me, to say the least. He offered me Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel to read, and I accepted. The Lord saved me as I read John's Gospel some weeks later back when he was a university student. An anonymous Christian friend, a passing conversation. Now there's an encouragement for us, isn't it? While most of us do not become Apostle Peters, anyone here aiming to be an Apostle Peter? Good. Most of us don't become like Kanishka, but sometimes we can all have those sorts of conversations or give the gift of a gospel. And so we can see God at work in people to bring them to Christ. And who knows what that person will do? They might become great, they might become average. Who knows what they'll be like? Someone once shared their faith with Billy Graham. So many have come to Christ through the faithfulness of SRE teachers. And so you see, Andrew, this guy who goes out and grabs people and says, come, come, look, listen, come see, listen, is this tremendous encouragement. Then there's Peter, verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Kephas, which when translated is Peter. Do you hear it again? He's doing the translation job for us. We see the translation for those who are not Aramaic speakers this time, which was the Hebrew was sort of what happened in the temple, Aramaic was what happened out in the streets. Kephas means rock. And in Greek, the word for rock, there's a couple of words for rock, but one of them is Petros, which is Peter. And knowing what we know, that Jesus will look at him and say, rock doesn't surprise us. You know, Peter, the big fisherman, salt of the earth, solid as a rock sort of guy, until you read the gospel and you realise that Peter is not very much like a rock at all. In fact, he's up and down like a yo-yo. He might be very, very right and he's often very, very wrong. He's an interesting character at the very least Peter does not make boring stories. He suffers from foot-in-mouth disease, he suffers from speak-before-you-think disease, and so much else. He's just as likely to be wrong as he is to be right. But Jesus looked at him and said, you, Peter, will be, well, you, Simon, will be called Rock, Peter. So Jesus, you see, is not seeing him so much as what he was then as to what he could become, what he would become under God's hand and grace. He is the one in the early church who everyone looked to, looked for a lead and he didn't disappoint. 
He's the one who stands firm and goes right on with whatever work it is God has for him to do. You know, he doesn't get everything right. There's a moment in Galatians where he has a fight with Paul over stuff. But Peter is the rock in that sense. He's the leader of the church. And Andrew is encouraging for all of us who are not Peter's, which is most of us after all, but we can also be encouraged by Peter because Christ looks at us and sees us not simply as what we are, though he does see that, but what we might become in God's grace. And in Peter and Andrew, we see the beginning of God's great plan for all who believe being able to be children of God. Remember that verse 12 that I've gone on about a couple of times now? You see, now it's not just the king, it's not just the priests, but even Galilean fishermen, like Peter and Andrew, can be children of God. And if we're encouraged by Andrew and Simon this way, what about the next two, Philip and Nathaniel? So let's move on, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, which is a town up the top of Lake Galilee. Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. Important to see that. Philip didn't take the initiative. Andrew and Simon, Andrew took the initiative. John took the initiative, if it was John. They followed Jesus, but Jesus goes looking for Philip. See, up to this point, Jesus hasn't done much. They've all come to him. They, and when he sees that they're already following, he says, okay, join the band, come on, come and see. But Jesus went out after Philip and found him. Now, when you go through the Gospel of John, you get the sense that Peter might not be as quick as some of the other guys. Uh, he's not as quick at picking up signals. He's not as quick as understanding the situations. and uh, Perhaps he doesn't quite get things in the same way as Andrew and Simon and John do. But he does realise that he's found something very special. Verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel <clears throat> and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. So do you see, Philip doesn't have a discussion. He doesn't try and convince Nathaniel. Now, clearly he's been convinced. He's, you know, got his head around that Jesus is a Messiah. But he doesn't seem to want to or know how to convince Nathaniel. So what he does, instead of having an argument with Nathaniel, he just says, well, come and see. Come and see, come and meet him for yourself. Now, that's probably the best suggestion he could have made after all. And it's helpful for us because under, when, when we've been questioned or when we're in those conversations, sometimes we don't think of the right things to say and sometimes we're, we're not as quick-witted as we might like to think we are. Sometimes we right, outright forget everything, you know, it just goes, whoosh, it's all gone. Somebody says to you, you know, tell me about Jesus and you go, who? I mean, sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? 
But when people don't believe but people seem to be interested, invite them to come and see. A great Sydney evangelist, John Chapman, that some will remember, once told me that the very best way to gospel someone, to talk to them about Jesus, was not to argue with them, but to invite them to meet Jesus by reading a gospel, just like Archbishop Raffle did. Come and see. We all have the greatest gospel tool at our fingertips, the gospel itself. Remember why John wrote? Remember why God inspired him to write? John chapter 20, verse 31, I told you, you're going to get sick of this. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, Philip's not the great man like Peter, nor the great inviter like Andrew. He's very ordinary. Perhaps often as, as you see him appear in John's Gospel, he's a bit out of his depth. He never quite knows the right thing to say or never goes the next step and initiates very much. But the amazing thing is that even him, he is part of the Twelve. Jesus chose him to be one of his closest companions. Peter, Philip, Andrew, John, Matthew, Thomas, Judas. Now there's seven. I wonder how many of us could name the other five. It's all right, I'm not going to ask. You can relax. But what sort of people were they? What were these 12 really like? Why is it hard to remember their names? Well, I think it's hard to remember their names for a very simple reason. They're not very memorable. They didn't leave any remarkable achievements behind them. Though later church people did make up legends about them, the legends never really stuck. And there were definitely the great ones. There was the Peters and the Johns, amazing men. But then there are others like Philip. Now, imagine Jesus, you know, he starts his ministry, he sits down, he says, I've got to pick 12 people. 12 because it's the number of the tribes of Israel. I've got to pick 12. Who am I going to choose? I know, I'll choose the absolute top-rung best intellectuals, sportsmen, whatever it might be, in Israel, and they will be my 12, and boy, oh boy, will we take over the world then. No, he didn't do that at all. In fact, what you see in the 12 is really rather a cross-section of people in Israel, just like the church is a cross-section of people in the world. The church has always had people of great talent, with great gifts, but most of us are very ordinary. Yes, we are extraordinary because God loves us, but we're ordinary in every other respect. One of my friends once said, the thing about being an average Christian is that you're average. And if you think about it, it actually wouldn't be greatly to God's credit if all he did was take outstanding people to do great things. That's what the world does all the time. Rather, it's when he takes ordinary people, people like Philip, people like me, people like you, 
and through us displays his greatness. Well, that is really something. And you see, God is not dependent on human greatness. So God can take Philip with all his limitations and bring him into the twelve. And he belongs there. He's not sort of, oh, we've got to have, you know, the dumb cousin. He, he belongs there. He's, he's the proper, he's the real deal apostle. But Philip couldn't find Jesus. Jesus had to find him. If Jesus wanted him, he had to go and get him. And he did. Follow me. Now, Philip might have been a little bit out of his depth, but he knew what to do after Jesus had found him. He went and found Nathanael. Now, Nathanael, as far as we know, is not one of the twelve. It's possible that he's um, Bartholomew, but there's no evidence that that's the case. But he finds Nathanael, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We've found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It sort of feels a little bit like Philip and Nathaniel had been having discussions about prophecies. They'd been sitting down under the, the trees and, and opening the Torah and the Old Testament and talking about all these prophecies and who are we looking for and what are we waiting for? And then Philip can run back to Nathaniel and say, guess what, guess what, we found him. We found the guy we've been thinking about and, 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 and reading about. Now, all we know about Nathaniel is in these few verses of John that we have in front of us now and one verse in chapter 21. But Nathaniel's initial reaction is not to be impressed, isn't it? Nazareth, you can feel the snarl, can't you? Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? As far as we know, there's nothing specially bad about Nazareth. It wasn't, you know, one of the really bad parts of, of Galilee or anything like that. It's just another town. But we know that from chapter 21, verse 2, Nathaniel came from a little town nearby called Cana. Now, Cana's going to come up in the next chapter, chapter 2, with the first of Jesus' signs. Cana's not far from Nazareth. And it may be that it was just a bit of inter-town rivalry. I grew up in Blacktown. I know, I'm sorry. I grew up in Blacktown, and just west of Blacktown is another suburb called Doonside. And when you grew up in Blacktown, you always looked down on Doonside. And you said, well, if you're a Doonside person, the only way out is up. You know, you wouldn't want to live in Doonside. And of course, the Doonsiders felt the same about us. We, and it was a, I, I had a, a bit of a salutary revelation this week. I went and did one of those things that I do and I looked up the elevation of Blacktown and I looked up the elevation in Doonside and guess what? Doonside's uphill. <sighs> My wife has just fallen apart. Uh, but certainly, Nazareth, Nazareth does not have a place in the prophecies about the Messiah. Right? And so, when he comes, I found the Messiah and guess what he's from? You'd expect him to say Bethlehem, Right? or at the very least, Jerusalem. But what he says is Nazareth. He says, oh, come on. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But Philip says, come and see. And Jesus welcomes him in a very unusual way, doesn't he? Verse 47. 
When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying there that Nathanael is without sin. He's just saying he's straightforward. You, you get what you pay for, so to speak. He, he, he has no facade. And Nathanael's response to that shows it's true. There's no false humility. It's just straightforward back in Jesus' face. How do you know me? Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, we don't know anything more about the interaction than that. But it does seem that Jesus has some supernatural knowledge of Nathanael before meeting him. And it was this knowledge combined with what Philip had told him that did something quite remarkable. Verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. His disbelief turns into acceptance, knowledge, understanding. Rabbi, great one, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now that's the same, that's two ways of saying the same thing, I think. It's like saying Steve is our rector, Steve is our senior minister. Same thing. Nathaniel, in such a short time, has come a long way and in doing so becomes the first in the Gospel of John to explicitly believe. Verse 50, Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And so what we see here is the aim of John, that stated aim unfolding, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And Nathaniel is the first one to explicitly acknowledge that as he meets the one full of grace and truth. But then Jesus actually takes it another step to even greater things. Verse 51. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that refers back to what we read in Genesis 28 with Jacob's dream. But there's a very important difference. Back in, in Jacob's dream, what he sees is this, this stairway, this ladder going up to heaven and the angels going up and down from heaven, from earth on, the, on, this, on this ladder, on this stairway. I know that's a bad picture. I couldn't find a better one. But here, Jesus doesn't say that. He's, he quotes from Genesis 28, but he doesn't say descending on a ladder. He says, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, it's in Jesus that the gates of heaven are opened and all who believe may go in. That brings me to the last point, the great purpose of John. Remember that throughout John, He's trying to show us that Jesus is the Christ. And over the coming months, as we look at John, the constant question in the background will be, is he, is he the Messiah? Is he the one? Is he the Christ? Is he worth believing in? And so we'll be looking at what he says, what he does, and what those things mean. And so as we go through John, we'll keep seeing signs, not miracles, signs 
because they're signifying something, they're pointing to something, they're significant things. We'll be looking at what he says and what he does and what they mean. And next week, we will look at the first of Jesus' signs at the wedding at Cana. Signs of who he is. Signs of his identity as Christ, the King of Israel, and the special Son of God. But the big change, the earth-shattering change, is that being a child of God now doesn't depend on being a child of Abraham, but is open to anyone who believes. In the Gospel today, we saw the fishermen, we saw the average Joe, the average person, and we saw the sceptic come to believe. Because that is what happens when you come face to face with Jesus. All this is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so the challenge for us, if you are a believer, if you're someone who owns and names Christ as your Lord and Saviour, the challenge for us who already believe is this. Do you think that God will convince people that Jesus is the Christ by reading John. Why not? Little personal challenge. Why don't you think about someone you could invite to read John with you? And let the word do the work. Don't feel like you have to have the answers. In fact, sometimes it's better to be confused together. But just like Philip, just like Andrew, invite them to meet Jesus in his word. Invite friends to come to church as we preach through John. Listen to the podcasts or the YouTube videos if that's easier. But trust that God knows what he's doing. And if you don't yet believe, if that's not yet where you're at in your understanding of who Jesus is and what's going on, then the challenge for you is keep reading. Keep reading. Because all of this, everything that John has written here, is meant by God to convince you that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing in him, you'll have life in his name. So keep reading. Keep coming. Keep listening. Come and see. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for these people, for Andrew and his companion, for Peter, for Philip, for Nathaniel. We thank you that they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for what we can learn from those early encounters. Father, we have come to you. We've come to know our Saviour, though we have so many imperfections and so many weakness and so many failures, by coming and seeing. We thank you that you welcome ordinary people and transform them. We pray that we may be encouraged from those that we've been thinking of today and strong in the strength that you supply, we may go forward to do your will and that we may be found faithful 
in our day and our generation, even as they were in theirs. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to